teams that I think they tend to get overlooked. And last season, even though they won, most people remember that the Nets were having injury issues and Kevin Durant was one shoe size away from sending them home in the second round. We have not given enough credit for a team that has been there, done that, and it don't mean a thing if it ain't got that ring. ESPN Radio. People are putting their money on Giannis Antetokounmpo. This is ESPN Radio on the ESPN app, Sirius XM, Channel 80, and on ESPN+. Plus. I'm Amber Wilson. She's Courtney Cronin. We are taking you up until 7 o'clock Eastern. We are presented to you by Progressive Insurance. You can tweet to us at AmberW790, at Courtney R. Cronin. You can also join the conversation at 888-SAY-ESPN. That is 888-729-3776. Who do you now think is the favorite in the NBA to win the MVP. ESPN Radio is presented by Progressive Insurance. Drivers who switch and save with Progressive save over $700 on average. Call or click today. Giannis, according to Caesars, Courtney, has attracted the second most MVP bets behind Booker and the second most money wagered behind Jokic over the past seven days. But that's not responsible for his odds movement, according to experts. Jokic or Giannis's odds have improved from 12 to win to one to win the MVP award to five to one to win the MVP award this week. A monster jump. They say that is primarily performance based rather than an increase in betting. But people obviously here down the stretch are putting their money on both Devin Booker, which I thought was interesting, but also on Giannis here. And that was something that we weren't seeing earlier in the season when this MVP race felt like a two horse race between Jokic and Embiid. Yeah. And I think that this even dates back to more than just like what we've seen in a bubble, like the last couple of days, right? We try not to be prisoner of the moment and thinking about what he did last night in the win over the Brooklyn Nets in overtime and, you know, breaking Kareem Abdul-Jabbar's franchise mark of 14,211 points. He's the all-time leading scorer for the, for the Milwaukee Bucks. Um, you know, and that performance comes on the heels of the 40.14 board performance he had the other day against the Philadelphia 76ers. I go back to January, Amber, when I think about Giannis in his MVP campaign that he's weirdly quietly been putting together. I mean, I know that Nikola Jokic and Joel Embiid, it's felt like a two horse race really throughout most of the season at large, but you've got to think about what he was doing back at the time where this team, you know, took down the golden state warriors. He was the first player in NBA history with multiple 30 point triple doubles in 30 minutes or less in the last 40 seasons. That's a mark that he reached on January 13th. And it comes on the heels of like all the things that he's done. He's already won the MVP twice. He's an NBA champion, a member of the 75th anniversary team, defensive player of the year, most improved player, um, you know, a six-time all-star. And this comes after he won the MVP in 18 and 19, and then the 18-19 season, and again, 2019 and 2020. Like, all of this has been compounding till this moment, and I feel like we need to include him in the mix here because while he's done it on a team that has consistently had other pieces around him where he's not doing it solo like Nikola Jokic is doing out in Denver because, you know, his two supporting castmates have been out since October, you know, he does have Chris Middleton in the lineup with him. He does have other pieces surrounding him that makes it not as difficult, I guess, for the Tam- for the Milwaukee Bucks to be the number two seed right now in the Eastern Conference. But he's been virtually unstoppable 
this stretch of the season. And I think these two, like, you know, going down the final six games before we get into the playoffs, I feel like you have to put some extra weight on that because of how he's doing it right now. And this might actually, oddly enough, if this is his third MVP award, this could be dirt. It could come during a season where he's playing his best basketball that he's ever played in his career, albeit even though his defense and the team's defense has taken a step back this year. Yeah, Giannis won MVP in 2019 and 2020. Jokic won MVP, of course, last season. Joel Embiid has yet to win an MVP award. And to me, his chances seem to be slipping here the most because I would probably now put him in that third spot because it just feels like Giannis has gained so much momentum here at the end of the season. And you can make a strong argument, Courtney, that Giannis is even even better now than he was when he won the MVP in both 2019 and in 2020. He continues to improve his game and add pieces to it, uh, which is incredible to think with how great Giannis already, of course, has already been. Uh, Giannis and LeBron are each averaging a league best 30.1 points per game and bead 30 points per game. Jokic He is ninth in the league in terms of scoring at 26.5 points per game, but he is also second in rebounds. He leads all big men with eight assists per game. I think sometimes because of the position he plays and the style of basketball, it's not so flashy, right? Because I I think that's another thing that happens to Jokic when we have these conversations. It's market, it's supporting cast, it's his games, not necessarily as flashy as we see sometimes from Giannis in the big moments or even from MB in the big moments and then Jokic of course does lack on defense compared to those guys as well although for his position is actually an above average defender so sometimes we make too much of that Giannis's team took it to another level last night behind Giannis's monster performance what he put up I think 44 I don't have it in front of me yep. last night to edge out the Brooklyn Nets by a point in OT and Jay Williams on KJM said that that performance last night shows that Giannis is the guy. Watching the game, Jay, what did it tell you? What was at stake, and what did that game tell you? That Giannis is the guy in the NBA. The NBA is his. Like, I'm I'm giving him the crown right now. Now, you guys know how analytical I am as it relates to how athletes, I think, think of the best ultimate skill set. But there's nobody more dominant than this dude in the game. So dominance has to equate to the best in the game, right? Uh, and what I've seen from Giannis in this three-way head-up matchup against KD this year when they've been able to meet, Giannis averaging 34, 12, 7 on 59% oh. shooting. Ooh, now, with what Giannis did last year and Kevin Durant, even though he had an incredible game, missing that shot down the stretch to win the game, right? And then seeing KD miss shots last night, I feel like Giannis's game is ascending, where I feel like KD's game is kind of hovering. Maybe the case coming off of last night, maybe living in the moment a little bit, but last night's game was a really exciting one. A heck of a matchup there, Courtney, and two teams that were playing like it was a postseason game. Is that the matchup that you would want to see in an Eastern Conference Finals, would you want it to come sooner than that? Like, if it happened in the first round, which it's actually actually statistically quite probable that we might get that matchup, is that too soon for that to happen for the NBA? Not necessarily. I think the league, of course, would want those ratings at as the as the postseason progressive to progresses to where you have less games on TV at a single time and more eyeballs on one singular product which you know if it's the Eastern Conference Finals 
there's nothing else besides the Eastern Conference Finals on that day. The Western Conference would be on a different day. So, of course, you'd be looking at this saying, hey, as far as getting the most bang for your buck, you would like it later on. But I think back to last year in the opening weekend, the first round of the NBA playoffs, and you've got Hawks and Knicks, and you've got you know the Bucks doing their thing, and, and Kevin Durant carrying the Nets team. Like the Eastern Conference playoffs last year to start things out in the first round were so exciting because there were all these matchups that actually mattered. It wasn't, you know, this mammoth thing where you've got a David and Goliath matchup and you know what the outcome's going to be before it even reaches, like, a four- or five-game series. So, yeah, it would make sense for the league to want everything to wait until the Eastern Conference Finals and to be able to get Bucks nuts at that point. But goodness, how fun would that be? Like, you would have a much bigger fan base, I think, if you're the NBA, if this stuff starts happening in April. And then seeing what that could potentially be two months later, is it going to be Heat Bucks? Is it going to be Heat Nets? Or, you know, what's Philly going to do? I mean, there's so many different outcomes here that Miami currently is the one seed statistically – they could play any of the nine other teams in the first round. I mean, there are ways for this to happen because of how much parity the Eastern Conference has that truly the Western Conference really lacks, and I think it makes for a great product, a very watchable product. Yeah, as you mentioned, the Heat could match up with any one of nine teams with just five games left remaining on their regular schedule. It's pretty remarkable. Also remarkable, the NFL draft. It's not very far away. Courtney Cronin has Malik Willis emerged as the best quarterback in this draft class. Where might he go? We will discuss that next. This is ESPN Radio. ESPN Radio. Amber Wilson and Courtney Cronin here on ESPN Radio. You can tweet to us at AmberW790 at Courtney R. Cronin. We have spent a lot of today's show on the NBA, but let's transition to the NFL and let's talk about some up-and-comers here that might be making an impact really soon. And for that, we'll bring in Matt Miller, ESPN NFL Draft Analyst. You can follow him on Twitter at NFL Draft Scout. Uh, Matt, I feel like every time I talk to you, we start with the quarterback. So let's start with a different position. Everyone keeps telling me that this is a really deep, wide receiver draft. How many receivers do you expect to go in the first round? Yeah, there, there's going to be a lot. And it's a, it's a nice change of pace to not talk about the quarterbacks today, right? We'll get, we'll there there get will there, be a lot. I think that, <laughs> right, yeah, right. I, I think realistically we could see six receivers go in the first round maybe as many as seven, depending on if a run happens at that position. You know, if if things get wild and the Houston Texans draft a receiver at three, we're going to see more go in the first round. If we don't see that first receiver come off the board until maybe eight with the Atlanta Falcons or 13 with the Houston Texans, that will definitely change some things. So I think right now what we're waiting to see is, all right, when does that first receiver come off the board? And then you can kind of see the domino effect. But it is a very deep receiver class where, I mean, really, if we saw – if we saw eight go in the first round, I would not be surprised. And, and one evaluator I talked to uh, this past week said, you know, this is a, a year where a lot of teams are going to be sitting there in the 20s, especially, you know, Buffalo, Kansas City, uh, and say, best player on the board is a receiver. Let's just take one because you need three or four of them in this day and age. 
Three more days remain during the Pro Day schedule in 2022. Oregon had theirs today. And all 32 teams were present, but some more than others. The Lions had seven different representatives. The Seahawks also had seven different representatives. And the Giants had five to see Kayvon Thibodeau and Verone McKinley do their workouts. Now, as it pertains to Thibodeau and where the Lions are drafting, way up high, we know that Thibodeau's falling right now and I'm kind of curious like as far as the intel you've heard about why that might be and is there a chance that the Lions would actually take him at two or you know end up doing something else at that position yeah this is something we actually wrote about today uh, on ESPN plus and our and our NFL draft buzz a notebook we do each Friday myself and Jordan Reed and and I kind of let off with this this topic is that you do hear he's falling and I, I think that's one thing in this line of work as you both know so well is you're reporting what you hear, not necessarily what you think, right? And so one thing that I, I continue to hear and really have for like a month now is that Kayvon Thibodeau is, is not the player that everyone thought he was. You know, and two years ago, if you had said, hey, who's going to be the first pick in the 2022 draft? I, I would have said, yeah, probably Kayvon Thibodeau because he looks like he was that player. I think the reason that he's quote-unquote falling came in smaller than people expected. You're 254 pounds at the combine. And while he's incredibly athletic, you see the flashes of his speed in his agility is people want, you know, consistency. Like we can pull up the highlight tape, the three of us and watch tape together and be like, Oh my God, did you see him do that? But then you'll go a stretch of plays without seeing it. And so I think that's the key right now is sometimes players, when they're so naturally gifted, they don't have to rely on the motor. They don't have to rely on the effort plays. And that's definitely a complaint I hear from NFL scouts as well. So could he be the second pick? Absolutely. The Lions sent seven people to Eugene, Oregon today to watch him and spend time with him. He very well could be. But there are definitely concerns amongst those evaluators in the league to where if he's you know, the fifth pick or the seventh pick or even a, a pick outside the top ten, we at least shouldn't be surprised by that. ESPN NFL draft analyst Matt Miller joining Amber Wilson and Courtney Cronin here on ESPN Radio. You mentioned there that he could have been the first pick at one point. Let's talk about who is actually going to be the first pick in this draft. Now, the Jags have spent a ton of money, Matt, this offseason. I think more guaranteed in an offseason than anyone else in NFL history. Does all the money they've been throwing around this offseason change their draft plan at all, do you think? Or is it still Aiden Hutchinson? I think it changed when they put the franchise tag on Cam Robinson. Like I'm, that was day, you know, like right before free agency hit. That news comes out, and I feel like everyone who covers the draft kind of threw our hands up, ripped our mock drafts in half, and it was like, okay, because at that point you really thought Evan Neal or Ike McQuanu they'll bolster the offensive line, they'll protect Trevor Lawrence, but then they franchise tag Cam Robinson, they sign Brandon Scherf from free agency, so you start to look at it and say. Well, maybe they will go pass rusher. And I, I'm, I do think that Aiden Hutchinson should be considered the favorite uh, to a point that it would be a surprise if it's not him. And even so, as you mentioned, they've been throwing money around like monopoly money, right? But the one position they really haven't addressed is that pass rusher opposite Josh Allen, even signing Arden Key from San Francisco. I mean, he's more of a rotational pass rusher, someone that can play inside or outside, not necessarily, not necessarily someone that would replace or take a role that Aiden Hutchinson could play. So, if you're in a state that allows you to, and there are odds on who the first pick would be, Aiden Hutchinson is a, a pretty good bet right now. All right, to the quarterbacks we go. We know that pro days happened for Malik Willis, Matt Corral, and Kenny Pickett last week. 
Is it fair to say that coming out of his pro day, even though he didn't run a 40, and I think he should have, but, I mean, Mel Kuyper and I disagreed about that (laughs) on air last week. um, Has Malik Willis emerged as the best quarterback in this draft, and do you think he gets out of the top ten? I do think he's the best quarterback in this class. What's crazy is I thought he was before the the pro day and even before the the combine. Watching him throw in person at the Senior Bowl Mobile Alabama is when I was – that's when I was convinced, right? And seeing him on the same field in the same conditions as Kenny Pickett, as Desmond Ritter, you know, all the top senior quarterbacks down there, which is six of the top seven quarterbacks that will be drafted this year, really impressed me with his tools, you know, his his character, his leadership. So I do think it would be a surprise right now if he's outside the top ten. I almost want to hedge a little bit because, like, that that does feel like the sweet spot. I think a team like Carolina would be very smart – they don't have a second or third round pick. They would be very smart to trade back from number six, let a team come up and get an offensive tackle or a pass rusher. They can pick up some extra draft capital and still get a quarterback of the future in Malik Willis. Uh, Kenny Pickett is an interesting one to watch because he is the most pro-ready. He started 49 games in college. Matt Rule recruited him to Temple. He was ready to go there until Matt Rule went to Baylor. So there's definitely a relationship and a connection there. We've seen in the past with Cliff Kingsbury and Kyler Murray how much that can affect what a team does, but I I do think Malik Willis should be the first quarterback taken, and I I do think ultimately he will be. See, Matt, I told you we'd get to a quarterback question for you, Matt Miller, (laughs) ESPN NFL Draft Analyst. Thanks so much for joining us. Of course. Thank you. Have a great day. Coming up next, we talk about guys who are already playing in the NFL. Let's talk about one who's been playing in the NFL for what seems like forever in Tom Brady. He's returning. How much of that was a factor in Bruce Arians' decision to retire? That's next. This is ESPN Radio. Monday on ESPN Radio. As the NBA heads into their final week of the regular season, the Golden State Warriors have been struggling down the stretch. Does Draymond Green think they can turn it on when the playoffs arrive? Chris Canty and Amber Wilson will ask Draymond Green when he joins them Monday afternoon at 6 Eastern on ESPN Radio and on ESPN+. Plus. ESPN Radio. It is a new era in Tampa Bay. Well... Kind of. This is ESPN Radio on the ESPN app, Sirius XM Channel 80, and on ESPN Plus, Amber Wilson and Courtney Cronin. You can tune in to the ESPN Daily Podcast, bringing you a deep dive into a single story from one of ESPN's hundreds of reporters presented by Supercuts. Download, subscribe, and review ESPN Daily, available wherever you enjoy your podcasts. Bruce Arians is out. Tom Brady, he was out, then he was in. I think he's still in as of right now. But, Courtney, you have an interesting theory as to the correlation of those two events because we keep assuming, and by we, I just mean the rumor mill generally, and I like the rumor mill. It's fun, so let's talk about it. The rumor mill is assuming that Tom Brady unretires and then forces Bruce Arians out. Like, that is the correlation between Tom Brady's unretirement and Bruce Arians' eventual retirement. But you have an interesting theory a different theory entirely tell us Courtney Cronin's Tampa Bay Buccaneers conspiracy theory look I think that Tom Brady coming back is the best thing for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers if they're trying to win in 2022 and I think Bruce Arians as a team player here in all of the recruiting that this team did during the offseason to try to get Brady back when he was retired for 40 days. He thought about it, and he's like, no, I'm going to come back. So I think Bruce Arians was very much a part in that, but I don't know if Bruce Arians wants to coach Tom Brady anymore. 
at 69 years old. Ooh, where there's Bruce your conspiracy Ar- in music. It's my, uh, what is this, Unsolved Mysteries? It <laughs> yes. works. It works. Who is X-Files? Excuse me. I sound like an idiot. Um, I was with you. I had no idea. I was just rolling <laughs> with it. Anyways, um, I think that Bruce Arians has had enough. You know, you have Tom Brady at 45 years old coming for people's throats this year, trying to win a Super Bowl so he can actually be retired and stay retired. You know that he's going to be driving Bruce Arians nuts. And I think that at the age of Bruce Arians, he's 69 years old. He's won Super Bowls before. I don't think he wanted to deal with that version of Tom Brady that he'd be getting in 2022. I truly believe this because it's not like he's stepping away from football altogether. He never said anything about his health playing a factor in this. We know that that led him to retire the first time around from the Arizona Cardinals. But he's been hinting at this for a while. I mean, like, you know, the age, all that he's already accomplished. And I just am not completely sold on the fact that Arians wanted to run it back with Tom Brady, just knowing how much work that's going to be and just the day in and day out exhaustion that comes with dealing with somebody who is so locked in and so at the top of their game and maniacally focused on winning another Super Bowl so he can go out on top. That's going to take a toll on everybody else who's on staff and that if you're not as laser focused and locked in and, you know, on the same path that Tom Brady's on, it's going to make for a really long season. So I think B.A. probably like looked around, said, you know what? I'm thrilled for this organization. I want to be part of this organization. But be, being part of it in a different way that isn't going to potentially, you know, wear on his health. You know, Tom Brady requires a lot to manage. I mean, it takes an entire village with somebody of even that talent because of the excellence he demands out of every other single person on staff from the head coach all the way down to the 53rd player on the roster. I, I don't like, know if Bruce Arians was like, I don't know if he wanted to sign up for another year of that. I like the idea that Bruce Arians would have Kyle Trask and would think, yeah, buddy, I'm right. This is good. I, I'm in. I'm. I'm gonna. I'm gonna continue on this career at 69 years old. And then Tom Brady, the greatest quarterback in the history of the world, comes back and he's like, you know what? I can't deal with this guy. Nope. I'm hanging it up. If you it was know, Trask, it would have been good. It would have been cool. Or if I brought Winston back, or one of the other rumors going around this off season. But now that it's that guy, that guy that is the best that I've ever done it. I, I'm. I'm out on that guy. Well, that guy comes with a different level of expectation that of what he expects out of you, Bruce. Aaron, wrote a book called The Quarterback Whisperer, and I think that Kyle Trask as a project, or if they would have gotten anybody else in free agency, remember, this was a team that was rumored for Deshaun Watson before Tom Brady ended up coming back from retirement, so who knows how that would have played out. I just think that there's too much, there's too much, ex- there's too many expectations surrounding Tom Brady, and that if they don't win a Super Bowl after he did all that to unretire, how does that look on the head coach? You know, I think that there's a stress that comes with that that is unimaginable. And for someone like Bruce Arians, what more does he have to prove as a head coach? He's still part of the organization, just in a different form in the front office. He doesn't have to – he gets normal hours. He's probably thought about this long and hard of, gosh, what have the last two years looked like with Tom Brady as my quarterback? 
And how is that taken away from other things that I want to do at this age? I mean, he's chill. He's laid back. Yeah, he wants to play golf drinks, more. He wants pouring to have, drinks yes, in the parking lot after happy, games, happy having hour. fun. Like, 100%. That Tom is... Brady does not allow for that to happen, Amber. He's going to be hell on wheels well, this year, more than any other year he's ever played in the NFL. I guess. Did you see that Super Bowl parade? It seems like Tom Brady knows a thing or two about enjoying some drinks from time to time as well. But yes, it's, gonna, it's, not gonna be, it's not going to be relaxing from – OTAs all the way through the end of February. I can promise you that if they end up getting that far, it is going to be a grind unlike anything Bruce Arians would have done up at this point in his career. And I just think that you got to look at it realistically and say, hey, I've done this, been there, done that. I'll still be a part of it, just a little bit further removed because I don't want to necessarily have that same sort of daily responsibility and dealing with someone who's going to be like laser focused. And that's the only thing that Tom Brady is going to be caring about this year. And that's going to weigh on a lot of people on staff. I promise you. I think you think there's a riff now, all the rumors of like, Oh, there might've been some sort of whatever between Tom Brady and Bruce Arians. Imagine what happens if they lose like one game this year. Well, listen, I I think that there's always a ton of pressure as a head coach, right? And I can understand at 69 years old just wanting to walk away from the pressure no matter who your quarterback is and to go enjoy your life more. I mean, the competitive spirit of some of these guys prohibits them from doing that. But Bruce Arians is probably one, like you said, who knows how to enjoy life off the football field as well. I think that the problem with your conspiracy theory is that I'm not sure I agree, although the pressure because of the expectation if you have Tom Brady at the helm is probably heightened. I don't know if I agree that coaching Tom Brady is the hardest task versus developing somebody new because Tom Brady, you really don't have to coach. I mean, what are you telling Tom Brady? You just got to let him and Byron Leftwich figure out the offense. They can figure out their own playbook if you want, and they can do their own thing. It's kind of everybody else on the 53 that you have to worry about. Not so much that guy because he's so proven. Well, so I course. think that your job would actually be harder in developing somebody new at that position or having somebody who's unproven at that position than Tom Brady, who you can just kind of like coast with and let him do his own thing. But you get to call the shots with a a brand new quarterback. You're the boss. You're in charge. With Tom Brady back at the helm, he is in charge. He is the the head coach. He's GM. He's everything. And and I think a lot of people don't want to sign up for that, necessarily subscribe to it. Well, I do like, though, I do like the idea... That it is not Tom Brady who ran Bruce Arians out of town. It is essentially Bruce Arians who wanted to quit Tom Brady. I hadn't heard that from anybody else, but you heard it right here from Courtney Cronin. Courtney Cronin and Amber Wilson here on ESPN Radio. ESPN Radio is presented to you by Progressive Insurance. Coming up next, we move our attention to the women's Final Four. Can UConn secure a 12th national title? That's next. ESPN Radio. 76ers last night, Courtney, could never pull away from the 20-win Pistons all night long. They blew what lead they had in the fourth quarter. They lost to Detroit 102-94. But what was interesting wasn't that they lost to the lowly Pistons. What was interesting about this game is what Doc Rivers said after the game. He was asked about the poor play of the bench because the bench of Detroit outscored the bench of Philly uh, markedly. And he blamed it on James Harden. Take a listen to this. Well, they didn't struggle. Um, you know, they didn't get a lot of shots, you know, in, in their defense. I think during that stretch, it was more James, you know, than, than them. So, yeah, that's just a tough night. 
Harden finished the night with 18 points, 4 of 15 shooting, but he was 1 of 8 in the second half with just 4 points. Do you like Doc Rivers calling out James Harden? I think it was warranted. I don't think that you can blame your bench for getting 8 points when you know how this team is constructed, that it's Joel Embiid, it's James Harden, it's Tyrese Maxey, and then it's no one else right now. So the fact that in the second half he scores 4 points is 0 of 5 from 3, Three turnovers and finishes with a minus 11. He deserves to be called out because he's so streaky, and this is just what worries me about this Philadelphia 76ers team, Amber, that this is the type of James Harden that you typically see in the postseason. And this is a team that Daryl Morey tried to construct to win a championship, so he thought, okay, I'm going to go get James Harden from the Nets. I'm going to trade away all of our good bench players, all of our good role players. That's the results you get. A bench that scores eight points and gets outscored by, you know, a Detroit team that's awful this year. Although Kate Cunningham did look good yesterday. Anyways, um, I have no issue with it. I think Doc, though, is feeling the heat on his job. And if James Harden, all these rumors are true that he wants Mike D'Antoni to be his head coach, Doc Rivers clearly knows that. So, of course... He's, he's going to have something to say about it in this maybe passive-aggressive, maybe just full-on aggressive comment that he made. The bench was 0 for 5 in the first half, and I understand that there might have been an implication here that Harden was the primary shot taker when the bench players were on the floor, but, I mean, of course, he would have been the best player out there, so I don't know if it should be surprising to anybody that James Harden would have been the primary shot taker. I thought it was interesting, like you, though, that he kind of placed the blame on Harden because I feel like there might be more to this story. I'm guessing that Rivers has heard all the rumors that we have heard that James Harden wants Mike D'Antoni to be his next coach, and does he look like he lost a step because of that because he's still trying to control his own destiny even though now he He's allegedly with the team that he wants to be with. And I'm sure all of that frustrates Doc Rivers that he has to deal with any of those rumors. And so maybe there's some personal stuff growing between these two and he's trying to send Harden some sort of message. ESPN Radio. Amber Wilson and Courtney Cronin here on ESPN Radio. You can always join the conversation on the Canty Collin line, 1-888-SAY-ESPN. That is 888-729-3776. Coverage of the Women's Final Four starts on ESPN and on ESPN Plus tonight, starting at 7 p.m. Eastern. So let's talk about the Women's Final Four. For that, we bring in our friend Monica McNutt, ESPN basketball analyst. Monica, thanks so much for joining us top-tier defenses all around in this Final Four. Do you think that's going to end up being the key here for both of these matchups? So, yes and no, Court and Amber. And also, hey, ladies, um, I think because you have four defenses that honestly are so evenly matched, which one of these teams has the offensive firepower to separate themselves becomes the question, right? Like, if the score ends up being low 50s, fine. But which team was able to get the final basket off? And so, to me... I'm almost looking at it in reverse. The defense is a given. The offenses of of these teams outside of Stanford, to me, has fluctuated throughout the tournament. UConn is in some weird territory, Monica, where we actually might consider them to be underdogs. I mean, it was an overtime game in the Elite Eight that gets them to the Final Four, and they've used double-digit lineups this season to try to get to this point. What is the lineup that Geno should go with on Saturday? I think he goes with the same starting lineup from the NC State game. That would be Aaliyah Edwards, Olivia Nelson-Odota, AZ Fudd, Paige Beckers, and Kristen Williams, who I think, honestly, in this tournament has been an unsung hero in many ways. I mean, she's playing some of her best basketball as an upperclassman, and she's not the one that leads the headlines, 
but she's smart and she's done a great job of picking her spots and keeping defenses honest. I mean, she came up with a big uh, basket against NC State to help them separate, and I think she had a big assist as well down the stretch. Um, so I think he goes with that lineup. The issue is going to become what he can get out of his bench. The injury to Dorka Uhas, who broke her wrist, I think is going to be a big deal when you look at UConn matching up with Stanford. So you just talked about UConn-Stanford there. That game tips off at 9.30 p.m. tonight. South Carolina and Louisville tipping off today at 7 p.m. Monica McNutt, ESPN basketball analyst, joining us here on ESPN Radio. Which of those two is going to be the better game, Monica, if I made you choose? I do think that the second game is going to be the better display of both offense and defense. The first game is looking like it's about to be all defense. I think on Wednesday when I chatted with David Behrman over on our betting side, the line was like one or the total was like 120. And I was like, ooh, I would push that or take the under because I think that's exactly where that game is headed, the South Carolina-Louisville game, I mean. When you take a look at these backcourts, who do you think is going to be the X factor when South Carolina and Louisville meet tonight? Well, for Louisville, it's Haley Van Lith, who has strung together four now, I believe, consecutive 20-point performances. When she had strung together three, that put her in the company of the likes of Asia Durr and Angel McCartry, who are Louisville royalty. Um, she's just been terrific. We know that she's a great defender, but I think offensively, Louisville has hit a stride that we hadn't really seen from them in the regular season, where they were often susceptible to offensive lulls. Excuse me. And then for South Carolina... Zaya Cook and Destiny Henderson will be the starting guards. I actually think if Don Staley opts to use Letitia Amihir as in the guard spot, as we saw a little bit earlier this year when Destiny Henderson was hurt, that could be a big-time X factor because she's bigger than Louisville's front line in terms of their guards that will be applying pressure, and she might have a shot to see over the defense and help South Carolina deal with Louisville's pressure. So which one-on-one matchup are you most looking forward to then out of these two games in terms of players? Uh, out of the two games, I think it is uh, some combination of Paige Becker's, Haley Jones, maybe Lexi Hall. I'm not 100% sure who will garner the responsibility of guarding her. But if I had to go, if I could just um, edit the question a smidge, the two-on-two would be Paige Becker's, AZ Fudd and Lexi Hall and Haley Jones. And you're talking about upperclassmen for Stanford and Jones and Hall, and you're talking about a sophomore and a freshman and Beckers and Fudd. But those four players have really stemmed both of their teams in terms of what they do offensively, and they've been terrific in big-time moments. We're halfway through this interview with Monica McNutt, ESPN basketball analyst here on ESPN Radio, and we really haven't mentioned all that much about Aaliyah Boston, the newly named Naismith Player of the Year. Um, she's incredible. The The accolades stand for themselves. The stats stand for themselves. How do you see her ability to change the momentum of the game, rising to this level in the Final Four, where South Carolina may be the favorite to win it all? Well, it's going to be a lot of defensive pressure on her because Louisville wants to attack and they want to score in transition and score off of turnovers. And so defensively, she's going to have to be a strong back line, assuming that her teammates aren't turning the ball over from the guard position. And then offensively, to me, Louisville has nothing to match up with her. Olivia Cochran has the size. Emily Inkler has some of the versatility. Maybe you combine the two of them. But if you've watched Leah Boston, particularly when she had 28 points and 22 rebounds, She's relentless on the glass. Her footwork is incredible. Her patience when she gets the basketball, very rarely is she rushed. And she's talked about this year wanting to get in better shape so that she will be prepared for these types of big-time moments and have stamina down the stretch. And she's done exactly that. 
You mentioned Paige Becker's Monica, and she got off to a slow start against the Wolf Pack, and then she went off in in double OT. What happens if she gets off to a slow start again? Um, I don't know that I see either team pulling away significantly in that ballgame. So if it is like the NC State game and her teammate, Kristen Williams, who I've mentioned, um, AZ Fudd, I thought Aaliyah Edwards actually had a big-time performance for that team. If her teammates can stem the tide, she's the sort of player that gets a feel for the rhythm and then can erupt when the moment needs her most. I mean, you tell me. Would you have rather her had a bunch of first-quarter points or show up in the fourth quarter in double OT? Like, you tell me, right? Yeah, absolutely, in the fourth quarter in double OT. So at least she showed up. I, do, I just wonder, though, if, you know, if she gets off to that slow start. Like, I'd rather her show up the whole time. I feel like that that would be yeah. the way to go there. So, Monica, coming out of these games, then, and I mentioned again, South Carolina, Louisville, 7 p.m. tip-off, Connecticut, Stanford, 9.30 p.m. tip-off, Monica McNutt, ESPN basketball analyst, on with Courtney Cronin and Amber Wilson here on ESPN Radio. So, Monica, who's who's making it? Who Who's going to be our national championship? So I've got a South Carolina Stanford reunion in my national championship. And I think South Carolina edges Stanford just a bit. They've been very clear that they were on a mission uh, of redemption after last year's heartbreak and disappointment. We saw the footage of Aaliyah Boston crumbling to the floor when she couldn't get that offensive rebound to fall versus Stanford. And so I just think that this team is focused and I like to believe that they've excised some of their offensive demons after that performance versus Creighton where they were able to get four players in double digits. Monica, thanks so much for joining us. No problem, girl. Thank you. So again, the women's final four tips off tonight. A lot of people, Courtney, choosing South Carolina. So I guess I wasn't surprised to hear Monica do that as well. I mean, Mm -hmm. these four teams are all juggernauts. So it wouldn't be surprising no matter what matchup, frankly, that comes out of this for the national championship. And I feel like the coaching matchup that we see in this UConn-Stanford game between Gino Ariema and Tara Vanderveer, both incredibly accomplished, not saying that, you know, it's not the same with, with Louisville and South Carolina, but I am so excited. That is a heavyweight battle of strategy and skill set. And like we were talking with Monica about all the different lineup changes that UConn has utilized. Are they going to go with the one that got them the double, the overtime win against NC State? Sure sounds like it, but man... Don't sleep on this Stanford team. They, I mean, hell, they're the one seed. I mean, technically, I, UConn's the underdog here. Right. I know it's it's wild, right? I mean, it, that's it's hard to have the conversation about any of these teams because yeah. it's such juggernauts here in the women's Final Four. But it should be a heck of a night in college basketball in the women's tournament. So again, our coverage starts on ESPN and on ESPN Plus at 7 p.m. Next, we transition to the men's tournament. This is ESPN Radio.